turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 36. Uh, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the uh, Old Testament. We're going to be looking at a genealogy tonight, so don't everybody get up and run at once. But it's in the Bible for a reason, amen? And uh, often those are the things that take the longest to dig through, and especially when we know that God's put them there. And so let's open with a word of prayer, and let's hear what the Lord would say to us tonight. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that nothing is in here by chance. But Lord, you want to teach us. Even as you just list the names of the sons of Esau, Lord, there's so much that we can take away. And so, Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak in a mighty and a powerful way. Lord, that we would be encouraged, exhorted, even rebuked if necessary. Help us, Lord, to walk in the center of your will, to be the men and women of God you've called us to be. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right. So over the past several weeks, we've been looking at the life of, mainly of Jacob. And we know that we've seen that he's had moments of brokenness, moments of desperation, but also moments of fleshly indifference. We know that Jacob, praise God for the word of God, that it does not hide the frailties of its heroes. Amen? Because if everybody was Daniel, we'd be in trouble. Amen? We'd go, oh man, I can never be that guy. We know Daniel was a sinner because all men were, but he's without recorded sin. And you look at people like that and you think, man, it's impossible. But you look at the life of Jacob, Jacob who would become Israel, Jacob, a mighty man of God. We saw in the last several weeks that he had times of great victory, but times where he really stumbled. And we've seen him lie. We've seen him deceive. We've seen him try to manipulate the situation to bring about God's will. Now, none of us would ever do that. But, you know, we can fall into that trap where we think God needs a little bit of our help. And, guys, the hardest thing to do sometimes is to just trust and obey God completely, even when we think it's not going to happen unless we put in our two cents. I shared with you on Sunday how, you know, the easiest thing to do for my family right now to get out of a tough situation is tell what the world would call a little white lie. Just don't tell the whole truth, and, you know, that'll fix the next nine months' worth of problems, But you know what? That's not what God wants us to do, amen? And when we try to manipulate the situation, we're going to miss out on God's highest. And we know that Jacob, God had already promised that he was going to be the son of promise. But yet he manipulated and he deceived his own father to get the blessing that God had already promised him. Jacob was a dad who didn't always step up, a man who was prone to be fearful on occasion, a man who could be both spiritually indifferent and also be broken and desperate. And while his story serves to encourage us, let me say this, that the story of Esau, his brother, serves to warn us. Jacob is an encouragement that, yes, God can use even me. Yeah, I can blow it. I can be a mom or a dad who didn't do everything God told me to do. I can be like, as we saw in chapter 35, one of the most gnarly chapters in the Bible, in my opinion, where a dad sits back and lets his 14 or 15-year-old daughter go into Shechem, and she ends up getting raped because he has no oversight over his daughter. And even when the word comes back, he doesn't do anything about it. He just sits back and says nothing. And then when his sons come up with a plan to deceive the, the Shechemites and to say, hey, just be circumcised and you, know, you can be one of us, which was, uh, which was blasphemous to the covenant God had made with Israel, that it was more than an outward appearance. There needed to be an inward commitment and a transformation and a covenant with God. And they blasphemed that covenant, and he still said nothing. But the good news is, 
That in the midst of all of that, and even when he was only thinking of himself when the consequences began to come, that God still uses Jacob in a mighty way. Now, the contrast is Esau. Esau, while Jacob is a word of encouragement to us, yes, I've blown it, God can still use me. Esau is a warning to us of what happens when someone chooses to walk away from God, having knowledge about him, and then choosing to just walk in the flesh and feed the flesh and serve the flesh and pursue only that which is temporal and disregard that which is eternal. You know, isn't that what we do when we sin? When we sin, we think only of the immediate. I said on Sunday that disobedience, what are we doing? When we disobey God, we're putting our flesh above the Lord. We're saying, I want my fleshly desires more than I want to walk in the center of God's will. I think I know better than God. Well, Esau, as we know, is a type or a picture of the flesh, where Jacob is a type or a picture of the spirit. And we can see in Jacob a a spiritual man, not a perfect man as we've seen, not always a godly man, but as we know, at Bethel, he became a broken man. And his name was changed, you know, from, and he was that, He went to the house of God. He returned back after he had blown it to that place of worship. And so God wants to do the same with every one of us. We're going to see in tonight's text, as we read a genealogy, that growing up with godly parents isn't enough to save us. Esau had godly parents. Esau is going to be one of the most godless men on the planet. Esau is going to have some of the outward trappings of being a godly man, But his inward actions and his behavior is going to prove different. You know, God has no grandchildren. We've all heard that before. Because you're saved doesn't mean your children will be saved. Some people have mistaken that verse that says, hey, you know, if I'm saved, then my kids are going to be saved. You know what? Our desire is our kids would be saved. And certainly they're going to have exposure to the gospel. But God's not going to force salvation on anyone. Our children have free will. And we need to intercede on their behalf and raise them in a godly home. Amen? And give him every opportunity to know him. We're also going to see not only that growing up with godly parents isn't enough to save us, we're going to see that pursuing an earthly kingdom only leads to destruction. Because from the outward appearance, as we go through this genealogy, Esau is going to look like the guy who's winning. Jacob, you know, Esau is going to be building a kingdom, and Jacob's going to be a pilgrim in, in the land. You know, Jacob. I mean, Esau is going to be the one that's accumulating much greater wealth and much greater power and, you know, seemingly sovereignty over the land, and yet Jacob is not. And if you look at it from the outward appearance, it would almost look like Esau is winning. Guys, we must not look on the outward appearance of things. Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart, amen? And it's not the temporal, you know, success that really determines if we're in the center of God's will. Our fleshly behavior we will also see impacts us, our children, and the generations to come. See, the godlessness of Esau is not only going to impact him, but virtually everyone who comes after him, with potentially one exception that we'll see tonight. So while on the surface, at any given moment, Jacob and Esau may be appearing to be headed in the same direction, dealing with the same struggles. Remember how the last chapter ended. Jacob and Esau are together bearing their father. Jacob and Esau are together burying their dad. I talked about how, you know, sometimes it's the greatest tragedies that bring an opportunity for unity. But we must never think that there's been full restoration. 
You know, Esau doesn't follow through on his earlier threat that as soon as dad dies, I'm going to kill you. Well, God protected Jacob. He protected him from Laban. He protected him from Esau. And that's the reason, not because Esau had radically changed. He didn't carry it out. You might start to think maybe he's not such a bad guy after all. But the mistake we can make is to judge someone based on one action. Now, Esau didn't have a change of heart. And we're going to see that as we continue on through the text. Esau would raise up a great nation like God had promised him. But guess what? This nation is going to be great, but ungodly. Great not in godliness, but great in number, great in power, great in influence. It says back in 20, chapter 25, when the Lord spoke to Rachel, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So he's going to be a great nation, more prosperous, more powerful. Again, looking only at the outward, he may seem more blessed, but we must never mistake the outward appearance from the inward truth. We must not be lulled into believing that Esau had become a godly man. And here's how we know this finally, before we look at the text. It says in Romans chapter 9, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Some people are really disturbed when they read that verse. And it says that he hated him from before he was born. And some would say, well, wait a minute. You mean God loves some people before they're born and hates others? You mean our God hates some... Yes, our God does hate things. Did you know that? He hates sin, doesn't he? Amen? He hates it. And some would say, well, man, poor, poor Esau. But the reason that he hated Esau and that he loved Jacob, is that he saw the finished product. Guys, you got to understand something. God is outside of time and space. He doesn't see us where we are. He sees us where we're going to end up. And because he knew the man that Esau was going to be, and he knew that Esau was going to raise up nations that would be enemies of his people, they would be wicked and vile and godless and pagan and idolatrous. And as we're going to see tonight when we you know, look at the genealogy and I make some references to some of its descendants, the wickedness that came not only from them but upon Israel as they became some of their greatest enemies. See, God knows the beginning from the end. And God doesn't look at where we are today, but he looks at the finished product. Many of you have memorized that verse. And it's a great one to memorize. He who began a good work in me is faithful to complete it. Amen? And so praise God that we're in process. And he sees who we're going to be in the end. You know, I have an idea that the enemy's got an idea who we might become. And that's one of the reasons we're often attacked. Amen? He starts to see those being used mildly by God. And don't be surprised when, you know, you're on fire for God. or Your family's starting to do great things for the Lord. And all of a sudden, wow, the attacks come. You know, Satan's not going to attack those that are no threat to him. Just leave them alone. But if the attacks come, must mean God wants to do something great. Amen? So the contrast between Jacob and Esau are not unlike the contrast between unbelievers and believers in human history. Unbelievers sometimes grow prosperous while believers remain pilgrims in the land. Unbelievers might secure power while believers remain under persecution. Unbelievers sometimes rise in sovereignty and believers fall into slavery. Unbelievers establish their kingdoms while believers are waiting for a much greater kingdom. Amen? That's what we're going to see in these pictures. I want us to take it and realize that it does apply to us today. That Esau is a picture of those who walk in the flesh. 
We'll see then the fulfillment of God's promise to make Esau a great nation. But we're going to see how brief. Because guess what? We have one chapter on Esau, and then we have chapter 37 to chapter 50 on Jacob. One chapter on the ungodly, the brevity. He does talk about his nations. He does talk about all the things that God had promised to make him a great nation. But we don't see any fruit. All we see instead is this a trail of wickedness. And then we get to chapter 37, and we get 14 straight chapters on Jacob, the one God had chosen. Not a perfect man, but a godly man, amen? And none of us are perfect, praise God, that he loves us anyway. You know, a quote I wrote down today, just as I was sitting down, I I must have heard it somewhere, but it really struck me. You know, often we talk about how, you know, All the wrath of man was placed upon our Savior at the cross. And that's absolutely true. The wrath, the judgment for the sin of all of mankind. And as I was sitting today, and I was spending some time in prayer, what God put on my heart was this. He made it personal. Dave, I paid paid the price as if I lived your life so you can enjoy the reward as if you live mine. I paid the price as if I lived your life so that you could re- re- enjoy the reward as if you lived mine. Guys, we in the, pick, in the eyes of God the Father look like our Savior because he paid the price for our sin and praise God for his love and his grace and his mercy. And praise God that even though we're not perfect, he still chooses to use us. And praise God for the examples all the way back in the Old Testament of a guy like Jacob who blew it all the time but was used mildly by God. A man who went from being a deceiver and a heel catcher and a supplanter to a man governed by God. That's what Israel means. And Esau, may he serve as a warning to us. So if you're a note taker tonight, a man driven by the flesh. First, we're going to see he disregards God's commands concerning marriage. Can I tell you that even today I was on the phone and if you have to try to convince somebody that the person that you want to marry is godly, they're probably not. Amen? And I can't tell you how many conversations I've had where somebody calls me and they try to you know, make a pitch for this person to get the approval of the pastor so he'll do the wedding and you start asking about the guy, well, he hasn't been to church in three or four years and well, he got burnt before and his feelings are kind of hurt, but he's really a godly man. And we have church together by sitting and re- uh, Forsake not the gathering yourselves together and all the more as the day approaches. Amen? And if he's a man of God or she's a woman of God, you won't have to defend them or speak up for them or try to make them look better than they are. You ought to just be able to let them loose in the room and everybody ought to see it. Amen? And right here we see when we're walking in the flesh, we pick our spouse in the flesh. But I'm getting older. I've got to hurry up and marry somebody before it's too late. Right? Well, she's cute. But, you know, or he's good looking, or, you know, he's got a good job, and, he, you know, he, seems, he takes good care of me. I'll, you know, I'll bring him to church. No missionary dating, amen? And so we see here this picture of the flesh in Esau as he has no regard for what God says when he marries. And guess what, guys, gals? If you marry somebody who doesn't love God, you don't think that's going to impact your family? You're out of your mind. I was saying today, and I'm going to do it. I was saying today, I am going to sit down some of the women in our church who got married and are married now to someone who's not saved, and some of the men in the church who are married to someone who's not saved, and I'm going to videotape them, and I'm going to load them on my computer, and when somebody comes in and is trying to convince me that they want to marry someone who's not saved, just a minute, now watch this, click. Don't do it. 
Let me tell you about it. I thought the same thing, and let me tell you what's happened. Let me tell you about what it's done to my family. Esau, in the flesh, doesn't care what God says about marriage, goes his own way. Second, he passes his ungodly values, or second, is moved more by his worldly possessions than the word of God. Can we all confess we've done that sometimes? Where we're more concerned about making a buck than the word of God. Why in the world else would we miss church to go to work? Oh, that hit me in the kitchen. What was that about, Pastor Dave? I didn't come for that. But guys, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Sunday's the Lord's day. Working on the Lord's day ought to be an exception, not the rule. Amen? If you go into your body, I don't work on Sundays. You know what? They respect that. They really do. But the economy's bad right now. God promises to provide for you. He's not going to tell you to backslide on your face so he can provide for you. Amen? Well, here we have this very clear picture. Esau is going to be more worried about his possessions and where he can best control them than walking in the center of God's will. Number three, he passes his ungodly values on to his children. Guys, you've heard it said Christianity is more caught than taught. And it's true that our kids see more of what we do than they hear what we say. And Esau's example is going to bleed right into his children. Fourth, He becomes just like the world around him. You know, someone who once claimed to know God but starts to live like the world, before it's over, you're not going to be able to tell the difference. And as Esau moves away from the land of promise and Esau goes out and starts living like the world, after a while he's going to blend into the world and there's going to be absolutely no difference. Even though he's from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then finally, his children often take his ungodliness to another level. It's amazing how an ungodly dad can have really ungodly kids. Now again, as we get into the text, I want to make it clear, not every ungodly kid comes from ungodly parents, and not every you know, child born to ungodly parents becomes an ungodly kid. There are always exceptions. But you know what? We need to be an example. You're not, your first ministry is your family. If I hear from your wife or your husband, you're spending so much time doing stuff for other people, you don't have time to minister to your kids, you won't be doing it anymore around here. Amen? That'll be the first place we serve is at home. Okay, a man driven by the flesh, he disregards God's commands concerning marriage. Then it says, now this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. Now Esau means hairy. So if you know someone named Harry, you can tell them your name's in the Bible, and actually it's not real good. Don't want to name your kid Harry. Not good. If it's short for Harold, God bless you. I'm not picking on you. I'm sorry. All right. But in Genesis, it says, Genesis 25, So when the days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau. Edom means red, and Esau means hairy. So more than likely, he came out covered in red hair. He he was just a hairy little guy covered in red hair. The day he came out. So they called him, you know, Harry. It's his name. That's why I get concerned for poor Leah. Weak eyes. But Esau was born with red hair all over. Now what did he do? It's interesting that it says, who is Edom? Edom means red. Now remember that he's the oldest. And 
tradition said, not only tradition, but the way that it was supposed to be was that the oldest was to be given the birthright and the blessing, which meant a double portion of inheritance, which means they took that position of leadership in the family going forward. And so he was older than his brother. Remember that Jacob came out holding on to his heel, and that's how he got his name, Jacob. Jacob means heel catcher. So here we have Harry and the heel catcher, right? And it says his name is Edom. Now, what did he do? He sold his birthright and his future blessing for what? A bowl of what? A bowl of soup. But it says a bowl of red stew. Red Edom. So Edom, a constant reminder of his fleshly choice. He chose a bowl of red soup over his birthright. Why? He was hungry. And this is what fleshly people do. I'm thinking about how hungry I am at this exact second. Whatever it costs me in 10 minutes or 10 days or 10 months or 10 years, I don't care. All I'm worried about is this right now. And you know, we can see people that are in that mode and you realize how foolish it is, but the truth is we've all been there. The truth is we're there every time we sin, aren't we? Because we're in a position where the Holy Spirit is warning us and cautioning us and he's throwing up the, you know, the stop signs, he's making ways of escape and we just keep going. Why? Because right now this is what I want and I'll worry about the consequences later. Well, this was Esau to a T. Yeah, I'll sell my birthright for a bowl of soup. That's as bad a trade as when we, you know, got the, you know, long, I, what, what, what island did we get from the Indians for like 40 bucks or something? I mean, that's what this was like. It was, you know what, I'll give you a bowl of soup for your birthright, and it shows that he had no thoughts of anything spiritual because he just didn't care. Oh, you can have it. Just take it. So Edom, this word Edom, red, was a constant reminder of the choice he had made to give up his birthright. So Jacob, the supplanter, deceiver, heel catcher, became broken. Israel means governed by God or prince with God. He had a new heart and a new nature. But here, Esau, Edom, reflecting his voluntary rejection of his birthright for a bowl of soup. Verse 2. Esau took his wives from the daughters of, where? Canaan. Do you remember when Jacob, and also with Isaac, when Abraham, what did Abraham say when it was time for Isaac to be married? He called in his you know, servant, his main servant, his most trusted servant. Most people believe it was Eleazar. Eleazar being a type of the Holy Spirit in this case. And he said, look, my son cannot marry from among these Canaanites, from among these pagan people. You need to go back to my land and find him a wife and bring her back. And if you remember, he traveled some 500 miles, and there he met, come on guys, who did he meet? Rebecca. And he brought Rebecca back, and they were married. Well, later, Rebecca says to Jacob, it was also an excuse because he had just deceived his father, and Esau said, I'm going to kill him. But she said, you know what, you need a wife, and you can't get one from here, so you need to go back to our land. You need to leave the pagan, idolatrous women alone. And go back and find one who believes and worships the true and living God. And instead, what does Esau do? Esau is not going to travel five blocks. Esau is not going to travel 500 miles. Esau is not worried about what God says or even what his parents say, but what he wants. 
And as he's walking through Canaan, he sees some of these pagan idolatrous women, and he decides to marry them. Why? Because he's a man driven by the flesh, not by the Spirit. A man of the flesh marries based upon the desires of the flesh. We see no prayer. We see no seeking his parents' counsel. Can I say this? I think it's not old-fashioned but godly to go to a girl's dad and ask for permission to court her. I don't think that's old school. I think that's biblical. I think it's godly. And if Kevin hadn't done it, he wouldn't have been anywhere near my daughter. You know what? I mean, that's what you look for. You know what? I want somebody who's going to do it right. And if they won't do it right, he's not the guy God has for you. Amen? If you don't have a dad, send her to me, okay? Or one of the pastors here. We'll do it. We'd love to. If he's easily scared off, he's not the guy. You'll scare him away, then he's not the guy. Amen? So here we see Esau, instead of doing what God would have him to do, instead of regarding what the Word of God has said, instead of regarding what his parents have said, instead of even looking at the example of his own brother, says, you know what? These women are convenient, they're pretty, they're here. But without seeking input from his parents, he, he marries Canaanite women. It says in Genesis 26, 35, speaking of Esau's wives, they were a grief to the mind of Isaac and Rebekah. That he, they looked at their son's wives and they were just like, oh. Why? Not because they were arrogant or didn't think they were good enough for their son, but because they were pagan, idolatrous women. Notice what it says here. Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. Aholabama, the daughter of Ana, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite. So the Hittites and the Hivites, idolatrous people. Basimath, Ishmael's daughter, sister of Nebajoth. Now, after marrying two pagan women, he decides maybe I can get back in dad's good graces by marrying back in the family, but he marries back in the family by marrying one of Ishmael's daughters. Who is Ishmael? Ishmael is the daughter of Hagar who came through an ungodly decision to go outside of, they got impatient, waiting for God's plan, right? Oh, but we've been waiting 13 years. We haven't had the baby yet. Maybe God's going to give her to you through my Egyptian maidservant. Here you go, Abraham. He says, okay. You don't see any arguing from Abraham. Here's my beautiful young Egyptian maidservant. Okay, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, let me do that. Abraham, father of faith. Weak. So what we see here happening is that now he's doing the same thing and he's trying to earn his parents' favor, not by asking them, not seeking godly counsel, but thinking, oh, if I marry back into the family. But again, he marries outside of God's will. He's trying to regain favor with his father by marrying back into his line. A wife from a family that God had rejected. Esau's problems only grow as he attempts to resolve them through his own fleshly intellect. See, he doesn't pray and say, okay, God, I blew it. I married the wrong women. What should I do now? If you're in that circumstance, you got married. Maybe you weren't saved, or maybe you got married based on the flesh, and now you're in a marriage where the person you're married to isn't saved. God's plan for you is to live a sold-out and godly life and love them so much that they just see Jesus flowing out of you. Amen? That's God's highest. But, Instead of going to his parents, he adds to the problem. And he goes out in his own fleshly intellect, doesn't seek God, doesn't seek godly uh, direction from his parents, and marries one of Ishmael's daughters. 
Then it says, oh, before we move on, oh, well, let me read this. It says, now Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basimath bore Reuel, and Aholabama bore Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These were the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Now what's interesting is that we have five sons listed here and an unknown number of daughters. But what's interesting to me is if you go and look back in Genesis 26, you're going to see that his wives have different names. And this is just Pastor Dave's opinion. But he changes their names to try to make them more acceptable in the eyes of his parents or in the eyes of the people that he lives with. But guys, you can change someone's name, but it doesn't change their nature. And it's not enough to just call them a Christian to try to make your parents happy or the people around you happy. It's not an outward name, it's an inward transformation that must take place. And here we have Esau walking in the flesh, goes out and marries pagan women and marries one of Ishmael's daughters and has these children and now to try to make them more acceptable, tries to give them names that might be more appropriate. I'm a Christian. It's not what you call yourself. It's who you are with the Lord that matters. Amen? So here's Esau walking in the flesh, doesn't care about what God says about marriage. And you know what? Can I tell you? Next to getting saved... The most important decision you will make is who you marry. Amen? Because you're being joined together as one flesh. This is the person you're going to share your life with, raise your children with, do ministry together with. This is going to be your partner. And as soon as you blow that, it's going to impact everything. Let's not take that lightly. Don't panic. Amen? I love that God caused a deep sleep to fall over Adam and brought him his wife. He didn't give him a bow and arrow and say, go hunt down a good one. Amen? Go find yourself a good one, Adam. Quickly, before it's too late. You're getting older. He didn't do that. He caused a deep sleep to fall over Adam and brought him his wife. You know what? When we rest in him, that's when God's ready to move. Amen? Second point. A man driven by the flesh disregards God's commands concerning marriage. Is moved more by his worldly possessions than the word of God. Look at verse 6. Then Esau took his wives... That's a problem right there. Got more than one. His sons, his daughters, and all the persons of his household, his cattle, and all his animals, and all his goods, which he had gained in the land of Canaan, and went to a country away from the presence of his brother Jacob. What is causing him to move? The accumulation of wealth. I have so much stuff, I can't stay here in the land of promise. I have... Such a good job. I just don't have time to spend time with the Lord anymore. I've got to go do that instead. You know, my priority now is I've accumulated so much wealth, I must move somewhere else. I must make something else my priority. Lord, never give us a job that would take our eyes off of you. Amen? Lord, don't give us five more cents than we can handle and still walk in the center of your will. Too often we think accumulating wealth is the goal. Can I tell you, I hope... You know, if my kids are digging ditches and on fire for Jesus, I will be the most blessed man on this planet. And if they are neurosurgeons and they're not walking with God, I will be the most grieved man on this planet. Guys, it's not the pursuit of wealth. It's not the accumulation of the things of this world. Often those are the very things that take our eyes away from our relationship with the Lord. He'd already begun to settle and sear, as we know earlier Jacob sent messengers before him to go find his brother. Verse 7. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. 
and the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. So the word strangers there, Esau left the land of promise, a stranger, to dwell in the land that would be known as Edom, named after him. Realizing Jacob was destined to be the heir and possess the land, instead of you know, saying, okay, you know what, Jacob, you are God's man, and I'm going to stay here. You know what, Jacob, I'm going to submit to you the authority that God's placed, and you're going to be God's man, and I'm going to stay here, and I'm going to serve alongside you, and I'm going to walk with the same, you know, with the true and living God. And you know what, if he's given you the birthright, that's okay with me. Instead, what does he do? All right, he's given you the birthright. This is going to be your land. I have two great possessions. I don't want to assimilate into you. I'm going to take my stuff, and I'm going to go start my own way. I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to go into my own land. Jacob was once the supplanter, deceiver, and hill catcher, had fled in fear. He met God at Bethel. He journeyed hundreds of miles to Padan Aram in obedience to, to his parents' command. He served his unjust father-in-law for 20 years, totally submitted without complaint, though treated unjustly. He remained until God summoned him back to Canaan. On the way to Canaan, he wrestled with God. He held on to him desperately until he was broken. God safely delivered his family uh, from Laban and from Esau back to Canaan. He strengthened his covenant with Jacob back at Bethel at the house of God. He changed his name to Israel, governed by God or prince with God. Jacob put away all his false idols and worshiped God alone. He made an altar to the Lord at Bethel. Rachel traveled nine months pregnant with child and gave birth to a son in fulfillment of earlier prophecy. Knowing she was about to die, she named him son of my sorrow, and Israel named him son of my right hand. As we talked about last week, a picture of the Lord. And Israel now broken and walking in obedience, worshiping and giving honor to God, listening for his voice, honoring him even in times of difficulty, inherits the land of promise. Guys, it's not by chance that he inherits the land of promise. Guys, it's not by chance that we inherit that spirit-filled life here and now, but have the promise of heaven to come. Amen? It's a reflection of who we are in our walk. Jacob was reflecting a man walking with God, though he was not perfect. Esau, on the other hand, had always focused on the physical. He sold his birthright and inheritance and future blessing for a bowl of red stew. He disregarded God's covenant with his father and married daughters of idol worshipers. He married one of Ishmael's daughters without seeking the Lord or godly counsel. He settles in the land of Edom, a place that would be a constant reminder of his sin. Because Edom again means red and he sold his birthright for a bowl of red stew. Today it's not much different. Those who have been broken while holding on to God, realizing their desperate need for Him, worshiping Him, listening to His voice, honoring Him even in times of difficulty, walking in obedience, will inherit God's promises as adopted sons and daughters of the King of Kings. But those who live lives that focus and, and desires are ruled by the flesh, those who would sell their future inheritance and blessing for immediate physical gratification, those who live life with no regard for God, His will, or his plan for their lives will spend an eternity in a place that where they will constantly be reminded of their sin. Amen? Do you know that we will have, we won't, I won't, and hope you won't, people in hell will remember. How do we know that? Luke 16. Lazarus and the rich man. He's in hell, and he says, go back and tell my family, because I don't want them coming here. Amen? 
And the reality is there will be those that will spend eternity in constant reminder of their sin and rejection and every opportunity they had to know the Lord. Pastor Dave's opinion. I believe that on Judgment Day, when people stand before Almighty God, he's going to show them every opportunity they had to know him. Here's all your sin, oh man. I'm guilty, and here's my grace, and every opportunity I reached out to you, and you just continued to reject it. Nobody's going to be questioning God on Judgment Day. Amen? Have you ever heard people say that? i got some questions. There's a God. i got some questions for Him. Uh, no. You'll be on your face. Amen? Trembling and confessing. Yeah, you're Lord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ. That's what they're going to be doing. You know Buddha's going to do that? Osama bin Laden. Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? All of them. Why? Because he is. And sadly, what we see here is where we invest. What are you investing in? The eternal or the temporal? Where's your focus? And those who focus on the physical pleasures of life are going to stand in eternity, just like Esau is now in Edom, a place called Red, a reminder of how he sold his birthright for a bowl of soup, a constant reminder the rest of his life. Those who reject the Lord will spend eternity separated from him. So, a man driven by the flesh, he disregards God's commands concerning marriage, is moved more by his worldly possessions than the word of God, and then he passes his ungodly values on to his children. Let's read verses 9 through 19. And this, or did we read the rest of that? Verse 8 says, So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. He's red. Okay? He moved to that land. They couldn't dwell together. He had great livestock. He moves. Verse 9. And this is the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites in Mount Seir. These were the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau. And Ruel, the son of Basimath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Taman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Canaz. Now, Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. Notice that his son has a concubine. Where did he learn that? And she bore, what's the name? Amalek. We're going to talk about that in a moment. To Eliphaz. These were the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. These were the sons of Reuel, Nahah, Zerah, Shema, Mizah. These were the sons of Basimath, Esau's wife. These were the sons of Aholabama, Esau's wife and daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion. She bore to Esau Jaish, Jalem, and Korah. Now notice that these sons become chiefs. Isn't it amazing how he bears these sons, he raises them in an ungodly way, and they give birth to more sons who are living in an ungodly way, and these sons become chiefs. Isn't it interesting how we become the chief of sinner when our sin is left unchecked? And what's happening here, and I'm going to talk about just one example here in a moment. It says, these were the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, were Chief Taman, Chief Omar, Chief Zepho, Chief Canaz, Chief Korah, Chief Gatam, and Chief Amalek. Now, where do we hear this name Amalek before? Amalek father of the Amalekites. Now remember that I said, not only were they ungodly, but they became the enemies of Israel. And when you get to the book of Exodus, and as they are coming out of the land, these chiefs, that word chief is a ruler of a thousand. So each of these sons now are ruling in an ungodly way, you know, a thousand or more people. 
So they've following in their dad's footsteps. And not only are they following his ungodly example, they're becoming even more ungodly than dad and are leading a, an army full of ungodly people. And we have a picture here, a clear one of the Amalekites. Because what happens is that you know, Chief Amalek when it becomes the father of some of the most ungodly people who've ever lived. In Exodus 17, the first people to come against Israel after they left Egypt for the promised land with the Amalekites. Here's what they did. Children of Israel are coming out of the land of promise, maybe two million strong. I mean, coming out of Egypt, headed toward the land of promise. About two million strong. Egypt is a type of the world. How did they finally get out? Passover, the blood of the lamb and the shape of the cross. The angel of death passed over, picture of Calvary. They cross over the Red Sea, a picture of water baptism. They go to Mount Sinai. There they receive the law. Now they're headed, as they're in that wilderness, to the land of promise. But in the wilderness... Those who were weak and those who were sick would fall behind. And the Amalekites were up in the hills and hiding on the sides. And when they would see some who were sick and weak and falling behind, the Amalekites would come out and ambush them and kill them and take their belongings. And God said, I have seen what you have done. I will not forget. These are Esau's kids coming against Israel, Jacob's kids. So not only did they walk away from God, they became chief of the sinners, the most wicked and ungodly and vile people. This is what happens when we have dads who train up their kids in ungodly ways. I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, the Lord says in Exodus 17, 14. Now, when you get to Deuteronomy, if you'll remember that they begin to fight against the Amalekites. And the Amalekites in Scripture are a type or a picture of the flesh, coming from their grandfather Esau, picture of the flesh. And the Amalekites, if you remember this story, they started to run over the top of Israel. And the Lord told Moses to go up and stand up on a rock. That's where he needed to stand to overcome the flesh on the rock, amen? And then he told them, to take the staff and lift up his hands, and as long as he held up his hands, they would have victory over the Amalekites. For you and I to have victory over the flesh, we must be in a place of surrender and worship standing on the rock. Amen? But remember, after a while, he grew weary, and his hands began to fall. And when his hands fell, the Amalekites began to run over the top of Israel again. When his hands were up, they were victorious. When his hands went down, the Amalekites ran over the top of them. But then remember what happened. God told Aaron and her to come alongside. And they sat on rocks and they held up his hands all day long. As long as it took for there to be victory. You know why? Because Christianity is not for the Lone Ranger. Amen? The Bible says a three-chord strand is not easily broken. When you grow weary in and of yourself, you need brothers and sisters in Christ who can come up and hold up your hands all day long that you too might live a life victorious over the temptation of the flesh. Amen? This is the Amalekites. Where did they come from? Esau. What's interesting, you go several hundred years in the future. You get to 1 Samuel chapter 15. And God calls Saul in. Samuel speaks to Saul on God's behalf. And he says to him, I want you to go and destroy the Amalekites. Kill them all, man, woman, and child. Now people read chapters like that and they say, what kind of God is that? Do you understand that God had told them all the way back in Exodus, I'm going to blot you out from the face of the earth. And God had given them grace all that time to repent and they had not. 
And now God is going to bring righteous judgment. Do you remember what Saul did? He killed the Amalekites. He told them to wipe out even the, the cattle and everything. But do you remember what happened? That he brought all the livestock back. He brought all the spoils back. And he even brought Agag, the king of the Amalekites, back. You remember this story? And he takes them and he chains them up and he parades them through town. He's going exactly contrary to the word of God and he's kind of excited about it. Look what I've done. Now you remember that Samuel comes walking up right about that time. And what does Saul do? He panics. And he says, oh, oh, prophet Samuel, I've done just as the Lord has commanded. And you know what's awesome? We know from scripture, what is here in the background? Right? Because he says, Samuel says, dude, what is this lowing of sheep and oxen I hear? Oh, uh, uh, the people, they're the one, you know, when you're confronted with sin, you can do one of three things, make excuses, accuse others, or repent, amen? So he starts pointing at everybody, oh, uh, uh, the people, they did it, and by the way, we were bringing them back so we could sacrifice them to the Lord. Don't ever try to spiritualize your sin like that, amen? You know, Lord, I just cheated on my taxes so I could tithe more. You know, that's, that was my thought process. I wanted to give more to missions, you know, I thought I'd help my brother out in Latvia, so I'm going to cheat on my taxes so I can send him a check. That's why I'm doing it. You know, God, is God stupid? So this is what, so, and then he's got Agag there. And Agag is like that one sin that you want to hold on to that you're not going to let go of. You know, Lord, I surrender my life to you, but there's just one thing over here. Can I just keep this one? And it's usually the chief of the sins, isn't it? It's that big one you just don't want to let go of. And remember what Samuel does? Samuel calls for Agag. And Agag comes out and he sees Samuel, who's now 85, 90 years old. And when he sees Samuel, he thinks, oh, whew. It's just Samuel, the old man. What's he going to do? What did Samuel do? He took out a sword and he cut Agag up into small pieces. Pastor Dave, really? That's in the Bible? Yeah, that's what happened. Samuel, the prophet of God, sliced the guy up, vegematic. He he chopped him up, small pieces. And you think, what was that about? You know why, guys? The chief of sin in your life can only be put to death by the sword, which is the word of God. Amen? Guys, Amalek, where did he come from? Esau. Where did these godless people rise up from? A dad who would not walk with God. His family followed after him. His children follow after him. They're even worse than their own father. See, don't, it's good that we read these uh, genealogies. Amen? In the Bible for a reason. You would have missed all that stuff. That's good stuff. So he's passing these values on to his ungodly children, this type of the flesh, utterly wicked. And who are they descendants of? Esau. It says, these were the chiefs, verse 16, of Eliphaz, the land of Edom. They were the sons of Ada, the sons of Raul, Esau's son, chief Nahoth, chief Zerah, chief Shema, chief Mizah. These were the chiefs of Raul in the land of Edom. These were the sons of Basimath, Esau's wife. And these were the sons of Aholabama. What a name. Esau's wife. Chief Jeush. Chief Jalem. Chief Korah. These were the chiefs who descended from Aholabama. Esau's wife, the daughter of Anah. And these were the sons of Esau who was in Edom. And these were their chiefs. So what does a man driven by the flesh do? He not only disregards God's commands for his marriage, he's moved more by the worldly possession, his worldly possessions in the word of God, and he passes his ungodly values on to his children. Then fourth, he becomes just like the world around him. Let's look at verse 20 through 30. These were the sons of Seir, the Horite, who inhabited the land, Lathan, Shabal, Zibion, Anah, 
Dishon, Ezer, and Dishon, Dishan. These were the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir, in the land of Edom. And the sons of Lothan were Hori and Hamam. Lathan's sister was Timnah. These were the sons of Shobal, Alvin, Manahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. These were the sons of Zibion, both this, you know, they put genealogies in the Bible to keep your pastors humble. <laughs> Both Aja and Ana. This was the, Ana was found in the water in the wilderness as he pastored the donkeys of his father Zibion. These were the children of Ana, Dishon and, and Holabama, the daughter of Ana. These were the sons of Dishon, Hebon, Eshbon, Ithron, and Cheron. These were the sons of Ezer, Belhan, Zavon, and Achan. These were the sons of Dishon, Uz, and Aran. These were the chiefs of the Horites. Chief Lothan, Chief Shobal, Chief Zimeon, Chief Ana, Chief Dishon, Chief Ezar, and Chief Dishan. These were the chiefs of the Horites according to the chiefs of the land of Seir. Now, I read all that to tell you this. These are the descendants of whom? Esau. And now... They're called the sons of Seir. What happened? They have come into the land. They've been living so long in the land that now they're identified with the land. They're no longer being identified with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're now the sons of Seir. They're now the sons of the godless land they've chosen to inhabit as they've left the land of God to inhabit the land of ungodliness. In the midst of the genealogy, the Edomites... Again, is inserted this genealogy of the Horites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites. They were natives of Mount Seir, and they're mentioned as dwelling there all the way back in the time of Lot. So they were already there back in the time of Lot in Genesis 14, and now we see their genealogy being mentioned again. And notice intermixed right in there are the sons of Esau. They become like the world around him. He sold his birthright. And now he's entered into an alliance with a pagan and idolatrous world. Guys, when we walk away from God, we always walk to something. Everybody's serving somebody, amen? We've all got a God. We've all got something we're following. I'm I'm serving myself. There's a God of this world that you're serving, if that's true. And his sons are now numbered with the godless. Those who desert God's church are are numbered among those who were never in it. Do you see that? These who had never known of, heard of, walked with, had a relationship with, and now those who were certainly raised to know the truth are now numbered among those who never walked with him before. That's how it's going to be in eternity. Those who were raised with the truth, heard the truth, chose to walk from the truth, will end up in the very same place as those who never in their life thought they'd make a stand for God. The apostate church today stands on the same ground with atheists and devil worshipers. Do you understand that? Guys, we're either with him or we're without him, amen? You're either a saint or an ain't, and there's nothing in between, amen? Either you know God or you don't. Finally, a man driven by the flesh. Final point. His children often take his ungodliness to even another level. Look what it says in verse 31. Now these were the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the children of Israel. Remember all the way back earlier that the Lord said to Rebekah, there are two 
nations within you. And you will be a great nation. And you know what? They had kings long before Israel had kings. But you know why they had kings long before Israel had kings? Because God's plan was never for them to have a king. Because he is their king. Amen? And the only reason Israel later got a king is they took their eyes off the king and started looking at the world's kings and said, we want a king just like them. Well, those in rebellion didn't take so long. They had kings a lot sooner. And that's exactly what happens here. They've got kings already long before we get to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And they start crying out for a king in Israel. Guys, God is our king. And him alone do we serve. Amen? He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He can't be voted out of office. He'll always be God. He's always faithful. He's always great. And he'll always love us. And isn't that good? Amen? Doesn't matter about the economy. Doesn't matter what's happening in politics. Our God is faithful. And then finally... It says, Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom. The name of the city was Dinhabah. Then Bela died. Now, watch this. Jobab, the son of Zerah of Bozrah, reigned in his place. Now, there's some conjecture, conjecture, and I don't know if it's true or not, but I think it's worth you know, listening to because it's kind of cool. Jobab, that name, some believe could be Job. And what's interesting is that this letter, you know, Genesis is right about the time of Job because Job actually is the oldest book in the Bible, if you didn't know that, as far as when it was written. Most people believe that. And so it's very possible because here's the other thing about this. There's the names of one of the other people mentioned next to him is Eliphaz the Temanite. Well, when you go to, when you go to Job, that same name is mentioned as being a friend of Job. Now, I don't know for sure if this is Job or not. Some conjecture it could be. It's right about the same time. He's got a friend by the same name. It's possible. And the only reason I want to point this out is this, that even in the midst of the most ungodly family, God can raise up a godly man or woman. Amen? In the midst of Esau and his godless chiefs and, all, you know, the Am- and Malachi, Amalek and all these ungodly people, in the midst of all of that, God can raise up one who serves him. So let's keep praying for that. Amen? God is greater. God is faithful. He can do it. He's done it. And again, whether this is Job or not, I I truly don't know. But I know God's great enough to do it. So praise the Lord. Amen? I want to at least point that out. And then finally it says, When Jobab died, Husham of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. By the way, notice it says that he reigned. When you go to the book of Job, you see him reigning. He sits in the city gates. He's in a position of authority. And the same guy, position of authority. It's just a thought. And when Hesham died, Hadad, the son of Bedad, Hadad and Bedad, who attacked Midian in the field of Moab, reigned in his place, and the name of his city was Avith. When Hadad died, Samla of Mashkarah reigned in his place. And when Samla died, Saul of Rehoboth by the river reigned in his place. And when Saul died, Belhanan, the son of Achbor, reigned in his place. And when Belhanan, the son of Achbor, died, Hadar reigned in his place. And the name of the city was Peah. His wife's name was Mahathabel, and the daughter of Matred, the daughter of Mahazab. Now, finally, and these were the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their families and the places of their names. Chief Timnah, Chief Alba, Chief Jetheth, Chief Aholabama, Chief Ela, Chief Pinon, Chief Canaz, Chief Tamon, Chief Mizpah. 
And then it says, Chief Migdiel and Chief Iram. They were the chiefs of Edom according to the dwelling places in the land of their possession. Esau was the father of the Edomites. Now, I don't have the definitions of all of these names, but I've got some. And I want to point out just a few as we close, and here's why. Because they're not good. Some of the names mean wicked. Alvin means wicked. Ithron means advantage. Belhanan means embracer of Baal. Where did these names come from? What happened was a dad walked away from knowing God. Today, as Christians, if you're born again, I believe you know, you're going to remain saved if you've truly been saved. But there are those who've been exposed to the things of God who walk away from the things of God. And notice what happens. He starts naming his sons according to the things of the world. And are we surprised that his sons and his grandsons and his great-grandsons were even more wicked than Esau? What are we leaving to our kids? What are we raising them up to be? Do you know that one of my greatest prayers is that my kids will love God more than I do. Amen? That's my heart. That's my desire. And sadly, we see here that the legacy is left. You know what's interesting? They were in Canaan, but they didn't possess anything. And he was in Mount Seir, and he possessed it. Guys, it's better to have no possession in the land of promise than to have all the possessions the world has to offer. Amen? It's better to have nothing that this world has to offer, knowing that heaven is our home, that that's our inheritance, than to have everything the world has to offer. So in conclusion, Esau's actions had consequences far beyond what he could have imagined, not only in his own life, but in the generations to come. And Jacob, though far from perfect, has been an awesome blessing to all of mankind, as he, by the grace of God, held on to God to the point of being broken, and through his lineage came the King of Kings. If we want to be used by God, we must be broken before God. When we start resting in ourselves, we start hanging on to the world, we start trusting in our possessions, we start making decisions without God's direction, we start thinking we know better than Him, do not be surprised when the consequences come. Amen? So, a man driven by the flesh, he disregards God's commands concerning marriage, is moved more by his worldly possessions than the Word of God, he possesses, he passes his ungodly values onto his children. He becomes just like the world around him. You can't even tell the difference. And then finally, his children often take his ungodliness to another level. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you and praise you, Lord, for the exhortation we've all received tonight. Lord, that our actions, first and foremost, impact our intimate fellowship with you. But Lord, even beyond that, the decisions we make, the choices we make, the way that we walk, impact not only our walk with you, but those around us. Impact our spouses and our children. Lord, to a, a, another degree, our coworkers and our neighbors. Father, I pray that we would be like Jacob and not like Esau. Lord, that we're not perfect, but Lord, we'd be broken and desperate. Lord, we'd be hanging on to you until we're broken. Instead of being like Esau, who would just run in the flesh and forget about the future and only be focused on immediate gratification. Help us not to be men and women of the flesh, but men and women who walk in the fullness of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for your word. May you be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.